So tonight we are going to be in the letter of James. So go all the way back towards the end of your Bible. If you get to the index or the uh, concordance in the back, take a left. Um, it'll be James. It should be First, Second Peter, Jude, and Revelation. So back in the back of the New Testament is the small letter of James. There's uh, five chapters in the letter of James. And so that is where we're tonight. We have been, of course, on Wednesday nights, we're walking through a different book of the Bible each um, Wednesday night and looking at pretty much a survey, looking at the high points of James. Before we get to James, give me some of, if you're willing to be honest, give me some of the biggest challenges you have in living the Christian life. Reading my Bible every day. Reading your Bible. Okay. That's mine too. Okay. Trying to keep my road rage down. Trying to keep your road rage down. Okay. Obedience. Obedience. Doing what it says. Actually, staying alive through this last subject. Okay. Really. Sure. Consistency. Consistency. Any other challenges that you would be willing to share that you deal with when it comes to living the faithful Christian life? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Patience. Patience. Not with me, but patience, I'm sure. Yes. I'm sure it's not with me. Okay? Just be careful. I ask for patience. Anything else? Any other ideas? Any other struggles, challenges, living a faithful Christian life? Okay, so the book of James is written by James, and we'll get to in a minute who he is. But it's written, if you look there in James chapter 1 and verse 1, it says to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Now that's a reference. He is writing this to Jewish Christians. And he's not writing it to one location where Paul would write in his epistles, whether it's to the Colossians or to the Ephesians or to the Galatians, or you see other places where Paul is writing to Timothy or he is writing to Titus. Or uh, last Wednesday we were looking about the unknown author writing to the Hebrew people. When James is writing this letter, he is writing this to all of the Jewish Christians at large. So sometimes in our culture today, somebody may put out an open letter. And the idea of the open letter is, it is public for everybody to read. Anybody that wants to read it, can read it. So what James is doing is the um, New Testament version of writing an open letter and saying to all the Jewish Christians, this is what it means to live an authentic Christian life. And this is how you live an authentic Christian life. Now he is writing to the Jews because at that time that is the bulk of who was coming to the faith. Now it wasn't just reserved to the Jews but of course he is going to be most familiar with the Jews. So he is writing to Jewish Christians but he's also, um, there is also in view Gentiles anybody, even you and I today, he is writing to tell us how it is that we live this Christian life. Now who is James? See? The brother of Jesus. Full brother of Jesus? Half brother? Half brother? Why? Because they didn't have the same daddy. Alright, so Jesus and James did not have the same daddy. So that's why he's the half brother. So he was the son of Joseph and Mary. But he wasn't, Jesus was not the son of Joseph and Mary, right? So when you say half brother, you might try to think about, some people may have a different idea when you say half brother, what you mean versus what the Bible talks about being a half brother. Well, how do we know that Jesus had brothers? The Bible says so. Anybody have an idea where the Bible says so? Okay, so it, I, you, you don't have to turn there. So, um, Mark, it talks about the names of the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Um, Mark chapter 6, where it talks about the brothers and sisters of Jesus. It also talks about it in Matthew chapter 13, talks about the brothers and sisters of Jesus. And so we know from those two references that Mary and Joseph had other children. So, Jesus growing up um, had siblings when he was growing up. And I think in Mark 6, it names off several of the siblings of the boys and of the girls that Jesus grew up with. So we know that um, James was one of the ones listed. He got the nickname in the early church period as James 
the just. So James the just, um, the half-brother of Jesus, did he believe that Jesus was the Messiah before Jesus died on the cross? No, he didn't. In fact, most of his family, but the best we can understand from Scripture, his brothers and sisters, we, don't, we assume Joseph believed, we assume Mary believed, obviously, because she understood, but the rest of the family thought he was crazy. The rest of the family didn't believe in his deity, and it was after they saw him die on the cross and rise back from the dead that his brothers and sisters said, yeah, this is the Messiah. Now, we really don't have a lot of record, or we don't have any biblical record. There's some of the historical writing of Josephus and some other historical writings during that time that talk about what you know, more detail about the brothers and sisters of Jesus. But here biblically, the only thing that we know is that he did have siblings and James the Just was one of them. Now, after Jesus died on the cross... And after he rose back from the dead, of course, now his siblings believe that he is the Messiah. So then, what role did James play in the early church? So if you go to a place like, I'm just going to run these off, if you want to write these down, if you go to Acts 12, Acts 15, or Acts 21, what you'll find is, is that James the just, after Christ rose from the dead, became a believer, and then he became one of the prominent leaders in the church at Jerusalem. So in um, Acts chapter 12, after Peter, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and he um, gives the gospel to the house of Cornelius, and the Spirit falls upon them, and Peter's like, I don't understand what's going on. I thought this Jesus thing was only for the Jews, and now I'm seeing it come to the Gentiles, and it was evidenced by the Holy Spirit, and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in their life. Well, then Peter goes back to the church in Jerusalem, because he was up in Caesarea, where um, Cornelius' house was was. So when he comes down south back to Jerusalem, the guys in Jerusalem at the church in Jerusalem are like, what are you doing? What's going on? And so Peter relays the story. And there in Acts chapter 12, it references that James was one of the spiritual leaders in the church. And he was one of the ones that Peter came back and reported to. And they understood that they had misunderstood that the gospel was not just for the Jews, but praise be to God, it was also for the Gentiles, which all of us in this room right now are in that category of being a Gentile. Then you get to Acts chapter 15. And Paul is uh, out on his missionary journey and there are those that are leaving from Jerusalem that are coming up um, to Antioch which is up in the north and elsewhere and they are telling these individuals, especially these Gentiles that have come to faith, he's telling these, these Jews are telling them, hey in order to be a true Christian you have to be circumcised. And Paul says, no circumcision was a mark given to the Jews, but if you're a Gentile, circumcision is not required to be a Christian. It's by grace through faith alone that you become a Christian. So you come to Acts 15 and you get to this Jerusalem council where Paul comes in and he makes his defense and he said you all are putting a legalistic works based hoop in front of them that Christ didn't put in front of them and you're adding to the gospel. And so Acts 15 there is the Jerusalem council where they come together. James is mentioned in there and then in Acts 21 as Paul is coming back to Jerusalem for the last time to present himself to make his place to um, make it for the feast, it says that he came back and he presented himself to James. So it's giving indication that James was one of the leading um, spiritual leaders in the church there in Jerusalem. So that is a big deal because that was pretty much the epicenter, if you will, of the expansion of the gospel. So if you remember um, in your history there in the book, the book of Acts, you know they were all huddled right there in Jerusalem, scared to go out. Jesus said, you're going to go and Judea and all Samaria and the ends of the earth. But they're all huddled up. And then you had the stoning of Stephen. Remember reading this in your Bible? So you had the stoning of Stephen and when that happened, they were scattered. It was like the persecution is what spread the church far and wide. And that's where you have um, people moving out and telling other people about Jesus. So James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus, one of the spiritual leaders of the church of Jerusalem. So this isn't just a guy, a no-name guy, a no-influence guy, a no-position guy, just some random guy that decides to sit down and 
and write a letter. This is one of the spiritual leaders of the church in Jerusalem, pretty much the hub of the evangelistic church work that was taking place during that time. And he is writing a letter, an open letter to all of the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. This is how you live a Christian life. Now this this letter gives people fits. In fact, Martin Luther, back in the 1500s, um, he was known to say that he wished that he could take Jimmy out of the Bible. Um, Jimmy is a nickname for James, and so he, he mentioned in some of his writings that he didn't like this book because of what this book, how this book stepped on his toes. If you come back and you read these five chapters, there is a lot of personal application in this letter that steps on your toes. And you find yourself going through this going, ouch, 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 ouch. Vody Bachman, I listened to him a long time ago, and he said, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. Kind of one of those things that if you're reading through it, and if you can't say amen, you say ouch, because James is very practical. And it's also very applicable to our time Today. Now, James, some people think that he wrote this later in the 60 AD, in the 60 AD region. But then there's others that I tend to side with that disagree with that. The Jerusalem Council took place around 48-49 AD. Um, They think that if this was written after that, then he would have probably mentioned the Jerusalem Council in his letter. So um, where I tend to land, where I tend to lean, is that um, James probably wrote this around 42 AD. It may not matter to you, but maybe kind of an idea of where this is set in the setting. The majority of Paul's letters are written about 15 or 20 years later. Of course, that's much later in life. When we're reading through the book of Acts, we might think of it day, day, day. But really, there's large swaths of time that are jumped. Maybe years, maybe months. Um, so, you know, you, you're seeing a picture of 40 years worth of ministry in the book of Acts where you and I may look at it and think it's just a couple of days. James the Just was also martyred. He was martyred in 62 AD for his faith under the rule of Nero. Um, So Nero came. Um, Nero was the same one that saw to the death of Paul. A very, um, and I mentioned him before, a very ruthless, a very, um, very big tyrant of his day. So you have the letter of James. Five chapters in James. And what I want to point out tonight, I, I always struggle with what do you look at and what do you not look at in just a short period of time. So what I just want to look at when I, when I asked you what are the biggest obstacles or the challenges you have in the Christian life, James, um, if I'm going to try to summarize, he's going to talk about the dangers that we face in our Christian life, the dangers to our spiritual health, the dangers to our harmony as a body of believers, and the danger to our witness. So we're just going to look at um, one danger from each chapter. We could spend hours and hours together pouring through the letter of James, but I'm going to try to encapsulate this in the next uh, 30 minutes or so. So he's going to talk about these dangers that come up that we need to be aware of, dangers that um, we face that um, hinder our Christian life. The first one I want you to see is in chapter 1 in verse 13. And I've entitled it, The Danger of Our Desires. The Danger of Our Desires. Now if you look at verse 13, he's talking about temptation, but he expands on that a little bit. And James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. What is He saying? He is saying that when you and I face opportunities to sin, and you say, well, you know what, God, it's God's fault, or you know what, God put that in front of me, or I sit there and I go home tonight, and I open up that freezer, and there are four cartons of ice cream, and I look at that, and I think to myself, well, God did that, so therefore I can blame Him if I indulge in ice cream. James says, God does not tempt you to sin. Well, the question we might have is, well, where does the temptation come from? Because I am 100% confident that every single one of us in this room have faced, are facing, and will face temptation to sin. So where does that temptation come from? Well, he tells us, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So open that drawer up, and that ice cream is in there. Where's the temptation coming from? It's not coming from God. It's coming from my belly. (laughs) 
And it's coming from the taste buds in my mouth. And it's coming from my thought saying, oh, it's just one or two spoons. Oh, it just, it won't make a difference. He says, uh, we are lured and enticed by his own desire. Verse 15, then desire, when it conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So he gives us this analogy or this play-by-play. This is how we find ourselves in sin. We find ourselves in the position that we are, we find something desirable and then we start to be enticed and lured by that desire because we dwell on that desire and we camp out on that desire and then we start to rationalize and justify that desire and even if we know it's sin, we still try to um, excuse away that desire and it says, and it fully grown, it brings death. So he gives us this idea that we need to be careful. There's a danger when it comes to being faithful in our Christian life and that is our desires. Yes, sir. So is it a sin when we're having the desires, even if we don't do the desires? I don't think that the temptation is sin. I think where the sin comes in is when we give way to that temptation. Is that something I've always struggled with? Is when I've thought of something, and then I know I'm not going to do it, but was I sinning because I thought of that not to do it? Yes. What'd you say? But that old hymn, yield not to temptation. For yielding is sin. Yes. Now, I do think that the temptation is a symptom of the condition of our heart. And so I don't want to minimize, I don't want to say, oh, well, I'm tempted to punch this guy in the face, but I didn't punch him in the face, so therefore, no harm, no foul. Yes, I did not give way to that temptation, but it is a symptom of the condition of my heart. And I also need to be sensitive and careful about those symptoms and the condition of my heart. Does it make sense? So you get like the Sermon on the Mount and he says, you know what, if you have anger, I mean that's the same thing as killing somebody and that's the condition of a heart. So we do need to be careful, you know, about those temptations because those temptations are meant to be warning signs. Hey, that's a desire. Be careful. Watch out. But if I open that drawer up and I see that ice cream and I think to myself, huh, that would taste good. And then I think, no, I'm not going to eat it and I shut the drawer. I don't think I've sinned. But at the same time, that's a symptom saying, fat boy, you want ice cream more than you want fruit. And that's a problem. Does that make sense? So, but, that, but it's a danger. It's a danger we face in being faithful in our Christian life is the desires that we deal with. Now, marketing, which I would argue is an older profession than prostitution. So uh, you think about marketing. What's the goal of marketing? The goal of marketing is to make you aware of what you want and then how to get what you want. And the whole idea, there may be things that you don't even know you that even existed. I mean, there's times we all can admit, there's times a commercial comes on, you're like, I didn't even know that thing exists. But now I do, and now I like it, and now I want it, and now I'm calling the 1-800 number, you know, and I'm spending the money because I want to get the thing, right? Because that temptation. I, there was an ad that came across my phone the other day and it was saying that there's all these pallets of Milwaukee and Dewalt and Matobi and all these tools that are returns and re, you know and rejects and they're selling these pallets for $30 and you can get a pallet of maybe 8 to 12 miscellaneous power tools still under factory warranty for $30 and I'm looking at it going I didn't know it existed until I saw this advertisement and now the desire of my heart says tools 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 and $30 I mean I can go to Jaylene said it was on sale and that works when she comes to me so it should work if I go to her so it's this idea that I can go and I can say tools $30 and then I found myself going why would they sell those tools for $30 there's got to be a catch there's got to be something there but that's where marketing comes in right well Satan is a master of marketing he knows the desires of your heart. So He is not going to tempt you with things that aren't desires of your heart. Satan came to me and said, I've got 50-yard line tickets for the next OU home football game. Pass. He comes to me and says, i got 50-yard tickets for the next OSU football game. 
Where do I sign up, right? Satan knows. So when we find ourselves being tempted, like I said to Matt, we need to be careful because that is revealing a symptom of the condition of our heart. And Satan knows how to get us at our very weakest point. And in this room, there are a variety of different desires. And the temptations we come across are not all the same. Why? Because our desires are not all the same. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, Paul says, no temptation is overtaking is not common to man. It's not that your temptation that no one else faces the temptation, but at the same time, we are all different and so we will be enticed differently, which is why they don't run the same advertisement on television over and over and over. They, they, they add a lot of variety because there may be a Ford commercial that Ron may go, whoo, look at that. And there may be a Chevrolet commercial that I go, whoo, look at that. And there may be uh, another commercial that Matt may step up and go, whoo, look at that. That's what Satan does. So James writes and says, be careful of the danger of our desires. There's another danger he talks about in chapter 2, starting in verse 17. And he talks about the dangers of distractions. The dangers of distractions. Now, verse 14 all the way down through the rest of the chapter is a a passage that um, can give us fits. Because what he's doing here in this passage is he is talking about the relation of faith and works. Now, years ago... The uh, other religions and other denominations taught, and there are other still churches today that teach that you are saved by works. You have to do a certain number of deeds in order to get to heaven. We, um, as Bible-believing, Bible-teaching uh, church, we say no. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But at the same time, if you have faith in God, and then if you have faith in Christ, He tells us that we will then serve the kingdom of God. And we will then participate in the kingdom of God. And we will therefore submit our lives to the kingdom of God. And part of that submission and that service and obedience will cause us to do works. So you may think, well, Spence, what are you saying? So works save me? No. What I'm saying is faith saves you, but that faith will then be evident by the works that you do. And so that is the whole conversation going on, verse 14 down through verse 26, is this idea that James is saying, when you get saved, you just don't become a secret Christian. When you get saved, there are going to be outward signs, outward actions, outward acts of service that you're going to be engaged in that will be evidence of your faith. The problem is, is we start engaging in this Christian life and we find ourselves distracted. Distracted by life. We got to feed ourselves. We got to house ourselves. We got to clothe ourselves. Some of us in this room are responsible for taking care of other people. Of course, government needs their slice of whatever we bring home. So you got to pay taxes to make money, you got to pay taxes to spend money, and you got to pay taxes to invest money, and you got to pay taxes to just keep money. That's round and around and around. And then you have family. You have responsibilities in the home. You have responsibilities with kids or grandkids or nieces and nephews. You've got responsibilities in, in the community. You're, you're active in this. You're active in that. And the next thing you know, we find ourselves distracted. And oftentimes, one of the first things that happens is, is our commitment and our service to the kingdom of God is the first thing that we let go. So we'll show up on Sunday, we'll show up on even Sunday night or Wednesday night, but our service to the kingdom of God is the first thing that we sacrifice or put away for in our walk. And so what James does here in chapter 2 is he says, be careful of these distractions. In verse 17, he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is Dead. Verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now here's where the challenge comes in. Because there are some people like me in this world that say, Alright, so just tell me what works I have to do. Give me the checklist. And that way I know, boom, 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 I'm done with what i got to do. And I wish that every morning... 
the Holy Spirit would just download in my brain, here's the checklist, and then I can think, oh man, I'll hurry up and get that done, and then I'm free the rest of the day. And it doesn't work like that. At the same time, some people may say, well, how do we gauge whether being faithful or not? He says works, but he doesn't define how much works or what kind of works or how often the works. And so I don't want you to hear from me, well, here's the standard we're going to put. And that's the danger that a lot of churches have gotten into with legalism where they start putting all these hoops and all these standards and all these, well, these are the the marks that you have to meet. The question is, is there evidence in your life that you're serving in the kingdom of God? Is there evidence in your life that you're serving in the kingdom of God? It's It's not my prerogative. It's not my call to tell you whether you're being faithful to the Lord or not. I can tell you what the Bible says about faithfulness. And I can help counsel you through the Word of God to say, are you being faithful or not? But the reality is, is if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, you have more access to God about you than I have access to God about you. But at the same time, I also want to warn you that I know of the danger that distractions bring. I know of the danger that those the, the busyness of life brings. I wish that I could tell you, well, here's the recipe. Here's the checklist. You've got to do blah, 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 blah. These are the works. And then as long as you're doing those, you're good. I don't have a list. But I do know that whenever you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will, there will be actions or there will be acts of service that will be evident in your life. So he says, be careful of what I've entitled, what I've described as these distractions. These distractions that keep us from working out our faith. Make sense? The idea of our service to the kingdom of God. So there's a third, third danger that he talks about in chapter 3. And that will be in chapter 3 and verse 16. And I've entitled this, The Danger of Division. So you have the danger of desires. You have the danger of distractions. There's also the danger of divisions. So I'm going to start back up in verse 13 just for the sake of context. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have a bitter jealous, or you, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There's a danger that comes in our Christian life, and that is the point of division. Where whether it's competition, whether it's jealousy, or as he says right there in verse 16, selfish ambition, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And we must guard against that spirit of division. Now if I was going to take that whiteboard and I was going to hang it right up here on this wall, you could go around this room, And I suspect every one of you would have a different approach on how you would hang the whiteboard. That doesn't make any of you right. And that doesn't make any of you wrong. We just have different approaches. And that's not a bad thing. The danger comes is where Terry gets up and he's hanging up the whiteboard. But JP doesn't like the way that Terry's doing it. So then JP then starts grumbling about Terry. Well, Terry's not doing what I think he should be doing and he's not doing it right. And he starts complaining and he starts and the next thing you know, we have division that is taking place. Well, the preacher did this and I didn't like the way the preacher did that. Well, they're doing this and I don't like the way they're doing this. And everybody has an opinion and it's not that your opinion is bad or unworthy or unwanted or less valuable than someone else's. But Satan is a master of bringing in to our hearts 
through the eyes and the ears and the domination and the key train of the mind to get you and I to think, well, they're do- they are doing it wrong. They are making a mistake. They have something afoot. We do not like what they're doing. And division will cripple and kill a church. So he says, be careful. Now, how do we know if we have division? Well, he says, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So one of the signs that you have when it comes to division is disorder. When you see disorder, you know that you have division. And he says, what will happen when you have disorder? There will be jealousy and selfish ambition. Sometimes you will get in, 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 in and I have seen this in, in churches where I've served, in churches that I've been a part of, where you have disorder shoot up, manifests itself out in the church. And people are like, well, you know, everybody wants to be sanctified and everybody wants to be righteous. Well, you know, no, no, no. You have disorder in a church. What does James say? James says that if you have disorder, you will also have jealousy and selfish ambition. And we must guard against that. One of of my biggest reservations in the last two plus years of serving here and seeing the people that God has brought to this church and seeing the numbers that God has brought to this church is I know that when this happens, spiritual warfare is a reality. And I know when this happens, spiritual warfare is present. And when this happens, there are adjustments. And there are growing opportunities. And there are um, things that have to uh, differ in how, in how we do this. Procedures and methods and, and, and administrations and policies and people and, and places of service. And all of these things are changing. And as these things change, there is the opportunity for a division. And I think every single one of us, well, I think most of us in this room, we would probably say, we're not against change. We just don't like changing. (laughs) Fair? That's right. Fair? Right? I mean, so it's not the fact that that we're against change. It's just hard for us to, I mean, we don't mind the change. We just hard, it's hard for us to change, if you will. Adjust. Adjust. That's right. And so, but the And I'm not saying that everything is right. And I'm not saying that every decision is the right decision. And I'm not saying that we are free from mistakes. But what we have to guard against is that division that creeps up. That selfish ambition or that jealousy and that disorder and that vile practice. And James says, be on guard. You want to kill a church? Plant seeds of disorder in the church. Put those seeds of grumbling and gossip and bitterness. And he said, she said, or come to the preacher and say, well, preacher, you know, we, and they never define who the we are, but they always come and say, preacher, we, uh, we've been talking. Uh, you know, and th- that stuff comes up and we must guard against that. And unity is not just my responsibility. Unity is all of our responsibility. It's a responsibility for every single one of us. So if Harold goes to Alan and says, Harold, did you know what we did last week? Well, I really don't like what we did last week. Harold, I mean, Alan has an opportunity to say, Harold, you know what? I understand it may not be the way you do it, but you know what? If it's really bothering you or from this offense, then you need to go to that person that was offending you. And it's an opportunity for Alan to encourage Harold to handle it in a biblical way. But if those two just sat there and Alan says, well, you know what? You didn't like that. And I didn't like this. And they just start going to seed on this thing. Next thing you know, bitterness and disorder arises. And it crops up. And it moves up. And we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful with the danger of division. Next one. Next one. Chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Not only do you have the danger of your desires, personal desires, the danger of the distractions, and then we kind of go in there more from the personal now to the corporate when we talk about the divisions that take place. And then he's going to talk about the devotions, the devotions of us individually and the devotions of us as a church. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Another thing that just steps all over our toes. He writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Oh, that's such a good question. 
That's, that's such a good question to ask ourselves. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It seems like every single day. There's going to come a day that Jaylene and I will have one day without it. But it seems like every single day in our home with six children, there's always... He did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. Back and forth, back and forth. The, the quarrels, if you will. The, the fights, if you will, amongst the children. Now, I'm, they don't get it from me, they get it from their mother. But they still... <laughs> you don't doubt me, do you, Miss Carol? No, you don't doubt me. She's in the other room, so she's not in here to defend herself. So, so it's this idea that, you know, that, but we ask ourselves a question. And so we can even ask ourselves a question here in the church. When quarrels, when divisions and fights among you, what causes that? Now we might say, well, I tell you what causes that. This group of people over here went rogue. Or what causes that is that preacher went liberal. Or I'll tell you what caused that. These individuals didn't do what they're supposed to do. And, and, and those might be true. But the vast majority of what causes quarrels and fights among you, he says there in verse 1, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Yes. And that's sad. It really is. And that's sad. And a lot of times it happens not because one party was out, they, they had it out for the other party. It's just they were very passionate about what they believed, what they wanted, what, what, what their desires were. And the other party was very passionate about what they wanted and their desires. And I'm looking at children in our home and he is very passionate and he wants to play with that toy. And he is very passionate and he wants to play with the same toy. And so it's not necessarily, I don't want you to hear from me. Oh, well, you know what? We just need to say this person's right and this person's wrong. But we need to be aware of how easily our devotions, or as he talks about here, our passions can get in the way of our unity. So he says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then if you look down there to verse 4, he says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Enmity. Um, You're at odds. You're at odds. You're um, set apart from. There's a division between you. Um, uh, it could be hostility. Okay, so that's another. That's another good word. So he's saying that friendship with the world is hostility or division, or you're not going to be able to be a friend with the world and a friend with the kingdom of God at the same time. You 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 have divided devotions, and as long as you have divided devotions, as long as you have divided passions, then you will never be able to rec- you'll never be able to reconcile the two because one's light and one's dark. But we got to be careful about how many times that our passions and our devotions are rooted in our love for this world and not our love for the kingdom of God. And that's a danger. That's a danger when you and I, our passions for these earthly things or for our own pride or for our own wants or for our own desires, those passions take priority over passions for the kingdom of God. Passions for the things of God. We were sitting down there at one point in time, we were meeting in the fellowship hall on Wednesday nights, meeting in the fellowship hall. They were, had 80 to 100 teenagers in this room. It was getting to the point, just from a safety aspect, that it was becoming just not a good idea. So we talked about it and said, really, it would make more sense for them to be able to meet on Wednesday nights down in the sanctuary. Which meant that we, as the adults, needed to come up here. Now, to be honest with you, I didn't want to come up here. 
you got to climb all these stinking stairs. I, I, I don't want to come up here. I don't, I, I, and the, the atmosphere, the feel of the room felt off, and I just didn't like it, and it just felt awkward. And on one side of me is like, no, you go outside, Adam. We're going to stay in the fellowship hall. No, you all be on Thursday nights. We're going to be here on Wednesday nights. I mean, there's, there's those desires, right? But at the same time, you got to ask yourself, where do those passions come from? Is those passions coming from a kingdom mindset that rejoices in the fact that there's 80 to 100 teenagers here on a Wednesday night? Do those passions, desires come from me not wanting to change? And there's a lot of division that will come in the life of the church when our passions are misplaced. I'm not telling you we should not be passionate about the things of God. But be careful when our passion for this world becomes a point of division. He says, causing fights and quarrels among you. When that becomes, we need to consider and we need to guard and ask ourselves, where are those passions coming from? It's a matter of devotions. It's a matter of understanding it's about the kingdom of God. It's about reaching lost people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about building families and teaching the Bible and being the church. It's about us recognizing that it's not about me and it's not about you. This is about Jesus Christ. And very easily, and I'm the chief, I am am the worst one in the room. I can already tell you, I'm the worst one in the room that wants it to be all about me. A couple weeks ago, whenever I was sick, woke up on Saturday morning and I knew that this was a bad deal and was not going to turn out in my favor and called and uh, made some arrangements. Adam filled in for me on Sunday morning. Once somebody mentioned, they said, well, isn't that so nice that here in the church we have different men that are able to step up and serve on such a short notice? And I said, it's a blessing and it's an incredible blessing. But at the same time, be quite honest with you all, it's also a little bit concerning. Are you insecure? (laughs) Because what that means is, You don't need me here. (laughs) You've got more than capable men and women in this church to carry on ministry. I mean, it was very evident Sunday, this church did not miss a beat. And now on one side, there is the rejoicing that says, Hallelujah, God, that there are men and women here that carry on and miss a beat. And if we had a visitor here, the visitor may not have known any difference. And then there's the other side of me going... Well, hold up a second. Hold up. They didn't, ha- they didn't just cancel church because I wasn't there? You know, because now you may, I, I'm just being honest with you. I mean, but, but we have those same kind of things, maybe on different levels, maybe on different subjects, but those, that's a question of passions. And that's, that's a question of my devotions. What is my, what is my devotion? That I want to be wanted and I want to be needed or I want the kingdom of God to advance? One body, one kingdom. What was better for the church, though? Well, true, true, but you know, but sometimes we these are these quarrels and fights come in. Sometimes now, sometimes there there is unbiblical practices and unbiblical things being done in the church, and those need to be addressed and corrected. Please do not misunderstand me that there is no need for a correction. There is when it is a clear biblical issue. But the majority of the fights and the quarrels that I have seen, even in the 10 years that I've served in pastoral ministry, the majority of them were not biblical issues. They were issues of misplaced devotions. So we got to be careful. There's a danger. There's a danger. Last one. Last one. Chapter 5. kind of titled this because I was going with the D's and the, the alliteration. So we have the desires, we have the distractions, we have the devotions. But then also when we fail to follow the directions. 
So there's a there's a verse here um, that I'm just you can go back and read it in the say in, in the context that it's in here in chapter five. It starts in verse thirteen, goes all the way down to verse eighteen. But he's talking about the power of prayer and the ministry of the church and in the and the harmony and the unity in the church. And in verse sixteen, he writes, "Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed." And I put there, there's a danger when we don't follow directions. Now, what have we been told in the New Testament? We have been told to confess our sins. I did, I did. And confession is good for the heart, bad for the reputation. So you got you got to be careful. But what the direction is, is that there is a there is a healthiness when we share our lives with one another. So we come in. Yes, you. Yes, and, and sometimes we share more than we need to. But yes, but yes, sometimes. But it, it's good that we share, you know, because a lot of times what happens is, is we come in and we play the church ping pong. Where Hurley comes in, how are you doing, Hurley? Fine. How are you doing, Spence? Fine. Hey, Josh, how are you doing? Fine. Hey, Spence, how are you doing? Fine. Hey, Jason, how are you doing? Fine. Hey, Spence, how are you doing? Fine. Oh, we're fine, 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 and we're back and forth like those. What is that cartoon where those those. Yeah, yeah. He said, mine, mine, mine. And the reality is, if we were to be honest, none of us in this room are fine. We're all a mess. We're all struggling. We all have temptations. We all have desires. We all have challenges. We all have failures. We all have shortcomings. We all have things in our lives that we are glad that it is not put out public for everybody to know about. We all have our own challenges. But what does he say here in verse 16? He says, confess your sins to one another. So that means I need to come in. I need to tell you about every bad thought I've had today. No, but we can come in and I can say, listen, you know what? I have challenges and I have hurdles and I have obstacles. And what we do is, is when we are open with one another and we are honest with one another, then we start to realize, you know what? I'm not the only person that is struggling. And I get to be encouraged by you and you get to be encouraged by me. There's some days that you come to church that you're in a better mood than others. And one of the beauties is, is when you come to church and you're in a better mood than other days, there's always someone that is needing your good attitude to rub off on them. And the beauty about the body of Christ is, is then when it comes around and you're coming into church and your attitude is not at its best, hopefully there's someone here that their attitude is at its best for that day and it rubs off on you. And by that, we help each other grow, we help each other learn, and we help each other mature in our faith. But why do we do that? He says, confess your sins to one another and then, and then pray for one another. And that's a challenge for us to pray for one another. I suspect the challenge really is just because we get busy and we become forgetful. It's not that you leave here and say, I'm not praying for them. It's not that you go, well, I don't want to have anything to do with them. I don't believe in prayer. No, we, we believe in prayer. And we have intentions to pray. But the reality is, a lot of times we don't because of busyness or just lack of devotion. And so what does he say? He says, confess, have that community where we're sitting there. Hey, this is a struggle I'm having. This is a struggle I'm dealing with. Right now, it is rampant in our society of pornography. And not just pornography when it comes to men, but pornography when it comes to women. Rampant. And it is more, it is more prevalent in the church than what we realize. And it is more prevalent in our society when we realize. And we may have thought, well, it's only for the high school boys. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Pornography is a problem at all ages. When that movie, Fifty Shades of Grey, came out, all that was was a female version of pornography. And it's not just just for the guys. It is also, it's for both male and female. And the pornography industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. And now with the access of your phones and other devices, I mean, it is just no holds bars. But that's one of the things that we don't talk about very often. Because what would it look like if I came in and I said, you know what, Harold, I need you to be lifting me up in prayer or hold me accountable this week because I'm really struggling with what my eyes 
are viewing. Well, I can't tell I can't tell Harold that because what will he think about me? I can't tell Harold that because what will he say about me? I can't tell Harold that because then every time I see Harold, then I'll always feel guilty because I told him about my problems. Well, yeah, but how are we going to have accountability? How am I going to find help and support and encouragement with facing that sin if I never, if I never tell people about the struggles that I'm having? Now that's awkward. And unfortunately in our day and time, we have become too accustomed to not airing out our dirty laundry. But there's something about the directions that James gives them here in this text. And he says, do you understand that apart from the Holy Spirit, your greatest source of support is not in a prescription bottle. It is not in a alcohol bottle. It is not sitting in a recliner numbing yourself by watching television. It is not in isolating yourself from other people, friendships and relationships and people asking and caring about your life. The greatest support that you have apart from the Holy Spirit is your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's where that confessing your sins and praying for one another comes in. And there's a danger. There's a danger that crops up into the church when we not only are not being open and honest with one another and seeking to encourage one another, but there's also a danger that comes when we are not praying for one another. Well, it's because you're afraid to be judged. You are. You are. And they won't accept you. Yes. You'll be out. Yes. Yes. So I'm in this... I've been a part of this men's group study and two other men in the group said, you know what, we really struggle getting up and getting in our Bibles in the, in the mornings. And I said, well, how could I support you or encourage you? And they said, well, if you would send us a text message at 5.30 in the morning to encourage us and help us, we would really be appreciative. And I said, I'll be happy to do that. Well, the problem is, is that my alarm goes off but Spence is lazy (laughs) and doesn't always want to get up at 5.30 in the morning so when it's 6 o'clock in the morning and I'm just now sending a text to these men not only I mean I told them I would do it so now I have accountability but now I'm having to tell them hey I have failed right I have fallen short we don't like that we don't like saying um I was wrong once upon a time on a basketball court if you fouled somebody you had to put your hand up now that's a long time ago now they have they have got away from that now it's just be as dirty as you can but once upon a time on the basketball court you got a foul you had to put your hand up so the score the scoring table knew that you were the one that you you held your hand up took responsibility and said I fouled them now we're in a different culture today and they I'm going to do as much as I can get away with but that's part of this Christian life is to put your hand up and say you know what I didn't meet the standard I didn't meet the goal I didn't do what I said I wanted to do I didn't do what I said I would do and I'm going to take responsibility and we are really losing that in the Christian church today of people willing to take responsibility and I'm going to tell you it is embarrassing whenever it's 6 o'clock and I'm just kind of sheepishly sending out that text saying good morning I hope you're in your Bible today because I'm thinking when the preacher <laughs> when the preacher can't do what he said he was going to do, we have a problem. I, I would highly encourage you to uh, go back and just make this a part of your devotional time this week and to read James. Uh, there's just so much richness there in how we live the Christian life and, and how we can live faithfully in this Christian life. And it's not just a matter of saying, well, I'm saved and I'm just going to try to figure this thing out and just fumble my way through it. It's an opportunity that you and I can not just survive, but we can thrive in this Christian life under the power of the Holy Spirit. Just, I'll be quiet. Grateful that you're here. Um, Friday night, the Beast Feast. Sunday night, the uh, missionaries that will be here. Hope you'll be here. Hope you'll bring somebody with you. Hope you'll let people know about that, um, that they are, they are coming. And so, just grateful um, for your time and uh, grateful for your flexibility, especially meeting up here and going through the, the changing.